This morning, we continue in our mini-series from the Old Testament book of Psalms. Context. Hmm. Whenever we're studying the Word of God, it's vitally important that we understand the context of the passage. In fact, it's been said that any text out of context is pretext. Today we have the privilege of perusing Psalm 34. What then, you should ask, is the context of this psalm? What prompted the psalmist to write Psalm 34? The psalms are very interesting, and most scholars would agree that they're written over an extended period of time between 1,000 and 400 B.C. by many different people. The psalms, we believe, were set to music and were often used not only for personal devotion, but for corporate worship as well. At least 73 of the psalms were written by David, and Scripture tells us that Psalm 34 was written by David. It's an interesting psalm. In the original Hebrew text, it was what's called an acrostic psalm, and that means each verse started with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, since there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, 26 in ours, there's no way really to transform an acrostic Hebrew psalm into English. It won't translate, and that's a pity. But why would David do that? Why would they take the time to create an acrostic psalm? And a couple of reasons. One, books were scarce, but secondly, it made it easy to memorize. And so we have that clue from this psalm that it was intended to be memorized, to be recited, to be taught. David, as a young man, he fought and killed the Philistine champion, Goliath of Gath. Goliath was from the city called Gath, and that'll become relevant in just a moment. Goliath from Gath was huge, over nine feet tall. His armor weighed over 125 pounds. He had a spear that weighed 17 pounds, and his armor was covered in brass. He was big, he was strong, and make no mistake about it, he's absolutely lethal. We're talking about context. The Philistines and the children of Israel were locked in a stalemate across the Valley of Elah. And what they decided was, instead of this all-out conflict where we're going to have many casualties, let's just do this. You pick a champion, we'll pick a champion, they'll come out and fight it out, and we'll let these two champions decide our fate. Hmm. So. Fighting for the Philistines. He's over nine feet tall. He's Goliath from Gath. And now, for the Israelites, we have nobody. Nobody would ante up. They were afraid of him. You've got this lethal giant of a man out here talking about killing people. Nobody would ante up. And so for 40 days, Goliath from Gath 
would hurl insults at the Israelites. Goliath from Gath would blaspheme the name of the living God, and they were terrified. At this time, David's about 19 years old. He's not there at the valley. He's tending the sheep, and his father says, listen, I need you to go see about your brothers. I'm going to give you some bread, give you some supplies, go feed your brothers, and give a few of these supplies to some of the captains, too. Maybe that'll curry favor with your brothers while they're out there in that battle. So David goes, and he gets there, and he sees this Goliath from Gath hurling these insults, and he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? What he was saying is that, look at him. He has no covenant relationship with the living God. Why are you afraid of him? The God that I know, the God that I serve, when I'm out here tending sheep, he has protected me from the lion's paw. He's protected me from the bear's paw. Certainly, he can deliver me from Goliath, from Gath. And so David takes up the challenge, and it says in 1 Samuel, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. I will strike you down and remove your head that all the earth will know that there is a God in Israel. And so David picks up some stones. He launches one with his sling into the head of Goliath and with Goliath's own sword, he takes off his head. Goliath from Gath, there he is, headless, and 19-year-old David picks up the head, looks at the Philistines and says, who's next? From this battle, he received notoriety and fame, and that, with that triumph, there also came trouble. Saul, who's the king of Israel, was jealous, and his jealousy soon turned to envy, and his envy turned violent. Then it turned lethal. He wanted to kill David. For years, Saul chases David around the countryside trying to kill him. Twice he threw a spear at him and tried to pin him to the wall. He sent him out into battle and hoped that the Philistines would kill him. He sent assassins to his home to murder him in his bed. Over 14 different occasions are recorded in Scripture of where he's plotting and scheming, and David now is on the run. He literally is running for his life, and he's hiding in hills and in caves. Not only does he get weary from the running, but something happens. David's faith fails. In his desperation, He's running, trying to hide. He goes to the high priest and he lies. He says, uh, uh, I'm on a secret mission for the king. Nobody should know anything about it. And um, you got anything to eat? 
And the high priest says, we have the showbread, but that's reserved for the prayer. Oh yeah, it's okay, you can give that to me. We're, we're fine, we're consecrated, we can take that showbread. Uh, just give me what you got. And uh, you got any uh, weapons here, by the way? He says, well, David, we have the sword of Goliath. We've got it wrapped in a cloth, that's here. Oh yeah, it'd be okay for me to take that too, uh, they, for this secret mission that nobody should know about and you shouldn't talk about and that I really can't talk about. I'll just, I'll take the, that's, that's Goliath's sword, Goliath from Gath, right? His sword, I'll take that too. He lies. David, the great champion, the warrior, the anointed king grew weary of running and he was fearful, so much afraid that he says, I got to get out of here. Because if I stay around here, Saul is going to kill me. He's going to catch up with me and he's going to kill me. And so he decides, you know, I need to go someplace where I can hide. Huh, I think I'll go hide among the Philistines. Saul won't think to look for me there. And not only does he decide I'm gonna go hide among the Philistines, he decides I'm gonna go hide in Gath. You remember Goliath, his hometown? Gath. Where's David going? Gath. Huh. Now maybe he thought he could just mingle among the crowd and nobody would notice that exceptionally large sword that he was carrying around. It didn't work out. The Bible says that they found him and that when they found him, David was sorely afraid. That's not a word we use a lot today, sorely. It has an intensity to it. When you tell somebody you're gonna be sorely missed or your cooking is sorely lacking in flavor. <laughs> There's an intensity to that, but notice what it says here in 1 Samuel 21. And David rose and fled that day from Saul, and he went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is that not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish. That's that sorely. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane. Am I reading that right? Yeah. Pretended to be insane in the hands and made marks on the door and on the gate and he let spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him here to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Get him out of here. Achish was so disgusted with the deceitful performance of David, he says, get him up out of here. In fact, get him out of here. David escapes. That's our context. That's the backstory. 
And now he's back in Judah in a cave. And he says, I want to tell you about my experience. I want to tell you the lessons that I learned from my experience. And I want to teach you a few things. Now, based on his experience, when he gets back to the cave, if you had been David, what kind of song would you have written? Based on what had just happened, what would have been your song? Boom, boom, ain't it great to be crazy? Boom, boom, ain't it? No. No. David transforms the cave into a cathedral, and he writes Psalm 34. Lesson number one, the lesson he learned about praise. Read with me, if you would, please. We'll read verses one through three. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Verse 1 is more than a song. It's more than a poem. It's more than a prayer and a plea. It's a proclamation. David, you see, is drawing a line in the sand, and he's saying that my circumstances are never again going to put my praise on pause. I will praise God no matter what is happening to me. I will, he says, bless the Lord at all times. Oh, my. This came up in our weekly worship committee meeting. It's God who does the blessing. We are the recipients of his blessings. I receive blessings from God. Isn't it a little arrogant for me to say that I am going to bless God? No. The Hebrew word here that is used is to kneel down. And what David is saying is, to bless the Lord means to praise him, to exalt him, to worship him. And Psalm is replete with examples of how we do that. We bless God for his wise counsel and we bless him for his holiness. We bless him for his dominion over all things and his honor and his majesty. We offer him our praise and our blessings because he deserves it. There is the difference. Unlike when God blesses us, it's wholly undeserved. We're the recipients of mercy and grace. But our blessing to God is done with an understanding that he is always praiseworthy as our creator and our heavenly father. God is glorified when we bless him and acknowledge him in our praise and in our adoration and our thanksgiving and in our love. To be honest, beloved, that's what we were created for, to bless his holy name and to worship him. But don't be deceived. It's not empty words and platitudes. 
no one can bless God in the way that David is talking about here unless you're right with God. Proverbs 28 tells us, if anyone turns a deaf ear to the law, even his prayers are detestable. It is only once we've been truly blessed by God, our Heavenly Father, that we can bless God in return, and that, in fact, pleases our Father. David determined that he would always praise God. What is the antidote for a failed faith? David says it's praise. What's the antidote for the poison of doubt and depression and despair? David says it's praise. Now, is David saying that he's never going to have any problems again and there are never going to be any issues? No, he's not saying that. But what he is saying, that with regard to his problems, with regard to his issues, that they are never going to become a personal referendum regarding the character and the credibility of God, because no matter what it is that we face or go through, God never stops being God. Even when we are hunted and hounded, and hated, God is still God. We live in an interesting time, beloved. Life is complicated and it's confusing. And this certainly has been a season of loss for many of us. Many students have lost valuable academic instruction. Many people have lost jobs and money. There are many businesses that have closed and some aren't going to reopen. Health has been diminished and for some of us we've lost loved ones. My dad died a few months ago, and I think about him every day. Fifty years from now, what are they going to say about us, about this season of loss? It may be said, that with all the loss at this time and at this place and among these people, that even with the loss, we never lost our praise. That we are people that praise God. I'm going to ask you plain, what problem presents itself in your life that causes you to put your praise on pause? Poverty? People? Pandemic? Or maybe it's prosperity. Things are going so good, you don't feel like you need to praise God. David here says our praise has to be an intentional act. There's intentionality here when he says, I will. I will praise God, O Lord, with all my heart, and I will tell all of your marvelous works. I'll be glad and rejoice. I will sing your praises. Because you see, without intentionality, praise becomes half-hearted. And the proclamations of the things we ought to be praising about go unspoken. We can always praise God for the joy we have in our salvation. When you come here 
Into this sanctuary do you come with the intent to praise God. Praise, beloved, is continual, as David says. It's intentional, but his praise is anchored in humility. I will bless the Lord at all times, he writes. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Verse 2, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, my. What David is saying here is that if I'm going to boast about anything in life, I'm going to be boasting about God. You see, it's God who delivered me from the Philistines. It's God who provides for me. It's God who saves. And beloved, there is always something the children of God can boast about regarding their God. See, I can boast about his person. I can boast about his attributes. I can boast about his covenants. I can boast about his promises. No, I don't think you hear me. You see, God keeps his word. He's never made a promise he hasn't kept, and he's kept every promise he's ever made. I can boast about that. We can boast about his works. We can boast about his faithfulness. You can boast because he's always holy. He's always just. He's always righteous. He's incomparable. There is no match for him, and that's why David cries, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let's exalt his name together. How do we magnify God, the lust? We magnify him through our witness and through our testimony. In the classroom, in the courtroom, in the commons, at the cleaners, in the car and in the cave, everywhere and anywhere, we lift him up. Lesson number one, when your faith fails, David says, praise. Lesson two, when faith fails, fear festers. As a young boy, David stepped up to Goliath. Not because he was extraordinarily brave, his faith was in God to deliver him. He had a covenant relationship with God. What David learned is how difficult it is for faith and fear to occupy the same space. When I was a young boy, there were a couple of games I used to like to play. One of them was steal the bacon. I, huh, there might be something Freudian in that, that I would like a game where you're stealing food, but steal the bacon was a game I liked to play. The other was musical chairs. Now, I don't know if you've ever played musical chairs, but the game gets down to two people, one chair. Hmm. And so it is with fear and faith. They can't both occupy the same chair. And this is what David learns. Dr. Lutzer wrote in his book, Growing Through Conflict, that fear 
creates a doubting heart, that fear distorts your self-image. Fear will make you double-minded. Fear will give you a desire for security. Well said, Dr. Lutzer. We see all of that here in David. Where is the confidence in God that he displayed as a young man? Where is the confidence that he displayed that God would protect him and deliver him? David gives us the clue, you see, over these years that Saul's chasing him, the years that he's running him down, David, he looked at the spears that were being hurled at his head. He, he looked at the plots and the schemes. He looked at the assassins that were showing up at his house. He looked at the people of Gath and saw the hatred and murderous intent in their eyes. He looked and he was filled with fear. And in fear, he fled. In fear, he lied. In fear, he disgraced himself. And what David learned and the lesson he teaches is that we always lose spiritual battles when we walk in fear. David learned this lesson, that he came to realize that he was looking at the wrong things, that he had stopped, in fact, looking to God. This is why he cries out in verse 4, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Verse 5, those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. The poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. But I want you to look again at verse 4. You there? You, look, you looking? Just say amen. amen. Okay. Thank you. Verse 4. I sought the Lord. He's looking at God now. Do you see this? I sought the Lord. I'm looking now to God, David says. And the Lord took away Saul. Is that what your Bible says? Is that what your Bible says? No, look at it. I'm looking to God now, and the Lord took away my fear. Oh, help us, Father. What a magnificent prayer. Take away my fear. Oh, the Lord, you see, hasn't given us a spirit of fear. The Bible says that we're to be anxious for nothing. The psalmist wrote, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Here, David affirms that there is nothing that comes into the lives of believers that God can't handle. 
when we face hardship, when we face vicissitudes, when we face challenges and difficult people and problems, beloved, that's when the attributes of God go from theoretical to personal. Oh, I wish I had a witness this morning. See, how do you know that God is a God who provides until everything is gone and he miraculously provides and then for you, he becomes Jehovah Jireh? How do you know him to be a God who will stand with you in battle until you've been in one? How do you know him to be Jehovah Shalom until you've been in conflict and chaos and he brings peace? Oh, what he's saying to us is simple and it's plain. I don't have to fear anyone. I'm reminded of Dr. King's last speech in Memphis when he said, we have some difficult days ahead, but tonight I'm not worried about anyone. I'm not fearing any man. Longevity has its place, but I'm more concerned about pleasing God than doing anything else, and therefore I have no fear, he says. Fear. We live in a time and in a place where they want us to be afraid. Fear and faith can't occupy the same seat. The psalm makes a transition, and it goes from this song to a sermon. And David says simply, I'm going to teach you how to fear God. I'm going to tell you what I learned from my experience in Gath. Now, I can't linger here, but it's so interesting that when he's teaching, his testimony becomes an integral part of what he is teaching. I think that's true whenever God's children are teaching. We have wonderful people in our children's ministry led by Michelle Forrider, but they can't just recite things. They can't just recite facts. It is their testimony that is on display that they are reflecting the compassion and the kindness from Jesus himself, and it becomes part of how they teach. You can't teach what you don't know, beloved. David says, listen, I want to teach you this. You got to watch what you say. Now, Achish was disgusted by David's behavior. In that culture, slobbering on your beard and spitting on somebody else's beard, that was an inexcusable affront. And I don't know why I even put that caveat on it. I don't think that's too cool today. Somebody show up all slobbering and carrying on? I don't, I, well. And David, you know, look what he, he says, you got to watch your words. He's, he doesn't elaborate on what he said to Achish, because I don't think he's trying to give us a lesson on how to be a lunatic, to be truthful. Most of us have advanced degrees in that already. But what he is saying is that when my faith failed, deceit poured out of my mouth. Help us, Lord. David said some disgraceful things, some disgusting things, some foolish things. Now, maybe you've never pretended to be insane, but what about gossip, backbiting, slander, cruel or insensitive jokes, profanity, lies, 
half-truths. Are you speaking words of affirmation and grace into the lives of your family? I guess I would say this to you. If it doesn't edify others and it doesn't honor God, why are you saying it? If it doesn't edify and it doesn't honor God, why are you saying it? Lesson four, your walk. Take heed to where you go. Now remember, David went to Nob and he lied to the priest, told him he was on a secret mission. He wasn't. Told him his men were consecrated. They weren't. I believe this weighed heavily on David's heart because here's what happened. The other side of the story is Saul confronts the priest about helping David. And Saul, in his paranoid state, orders the priests killed. And on that day, over 80 of them were slaughtered. And not only them, they marched back to Nob and killed their wives, their children, their servants, and anybody else there. And so David now says, I have to confront this truth. If I had never gone there, maybe they wouldn't have been killed. David's sin, his lies reveal for us a great theological truth about the personal and national effect of sin, beloved. Yes, David's behavior in Gath was disgraceful. He disgraced himself, he disgraced the people, and he certainly brought disgrace to the name of the living God. But it had a national effect as well. It caused the death of other people. And so it is today that personal and national effect of sin ripples throughout time to where we are even now. And that is why, beloved, when a brother or sister is taken up in sin, our motive should not be to punish or to accuse, but to do everything that we can to restore them to fellowship and restore them to a right relationship with God. We're all in this together. Lesson five, seek peace. How ironic. People have been trying to kill him, running after him. And David says, seek peace and do good. And you know, he lived this out. He had many opportunities after this to kill Saul. He didn't. He says, you know what? God doesn't need any help from me judging Saul. God will take care of evil. I need to seek peace. I like the story in Psalm 34 in large measure, not because David played crazy, but because it shows that even people who are anointed can panic and make poor choices and sin. But it also shows us the depth and the height of God's grace and his mercy, because David found forgiveness and favor and restoration from the loving God. I don't know what disgraceful things you've said or what disgusting things you've done. And maybe you're sitting in here today and you're feeling like you're trying to run from your past and it's like a dog nipping at your heels with you just one step ahead of it, just trying to stay ahead of what feels like is going to overwhelm you and overtake you. Beloved, I must simply say to you, stop running and cry out to God. 
Maybe you've been going to the wrong places to see the wrong people for all the wrong reasons. You can stop that right here, right now. David says, seek peace. Certainly peace with one another, but we want to have peace with God. And how is that achieved? Through the atoning, all-sufficient blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, for my sins, and for your sins so that we can be reconciled to God, so that we can have peace with God. I'm asking you plain, does anybody need any help this morning? You can be at peace with God right here, right now, in your living room, in your den, in your car, and certainly in any one of the seats in this sanctuary. I invite you now, beloved, to pray. Father, I've said what you would have me to say. Would you take the little that I have and you multiply it now for your glory? If there's anyone sitting here and you say, yeah, I, that's me. I've, my faith has failed. Well, praise God that the Lord is talking to you. You can confess that and forsake it. Or maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, I want to have that peace with God. I want to have that relationship with God. I, I'm so tired of walking in fear. Right where you are, you just cry out to him, Jesus, save me. I believe that you can, and I put now my faith and my hope and my trust in you. Save me, Lord, I pray. Stir up their gifts now, Father. Give them holy boldness to pray, to be salt and light where you have placed them, that in the city of Chicago and in every neighborhood represented by these, your children, that they will magnify your name and we will bless your name and praise your name. Until you come to get us, we pray. And amen.